So tonight, what we're doing is actually a makeup session for those who missed last Tuesday night Bible study at Wright State. And this is from our series called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. That's a series that will we started in the fall of 2015, so we've been at it about one and a half years, and we think we will finish it around the spring of 2019, about four years. And what we're trying to do in this series uh, is we're trying to do a rethink. When we say rediscovery, we're trying to say that uh, modern American or at least Western Christianity is not fully biblical in lots of ways. And so uh, what we want to do is first do a rethink to find out if the things we think about various major topics are, is really, are really scriptural by enough thorough enough study of the Bible. And secondly, to, can we build a church, a Christian community, a way of life together that looks more like the church of the first few centuries and that looks more like what Jesus intended when he created a group of disciples uh, in the, in, that uh, ended up with 120 people in the upper room at Pentecost. In modern standards, if you were to do three and a half years of very po powerful public ministry, and according to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to over 500 people after his resurrection, yet only 120 were so impressed with Jesus that they actually did what he said. <laughs> and said, he told them to wait in Jerusalem until they were filled with power from on high. And from Acts 1, 14 and 15, we know that the number of people was 120. So what we're really after is, you know, a way of life where we live together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what this whole series is about, rediscovering and restoring his pattern. And there should be, uh, one of the outlines you should have, should have emphasis five, rediscovering and restoring the Bible as the word of God, without saying emphasis five, O, small a, under it. And the one that says emphasis five, rediscovering and restoring the Bible as the word of God has our theme verses for the series followed by the 15 areas what you know when you talk about you know the John 16 Jesus said when the holy spirit comes he will lead you and guide you into all the truth that most people today would because we think of truth as being a bunch of unrelated things would say that's impossible how could you read how could anybody be led and guided into all the truth but if you break it down by major categories of biblical thought, you can't be right about every little jot and tittle because we're human and finite and, and we're still darkened by sin and so forth. But you really can do a rethink on all the major subjects. And you can take each one of them to a, a different level of biblical understanding. So what we've listed there on that outline is the 15 areas that we're trying to do a rethink on in terms of this particular study. And um, uh, if you'll notice, there's 23 Roman numerals there, but there's only 15 uh, letters, so to speak. So, um, uh, on the one side, by the way, it, I'm sorry, the 23 Roman numerals are the, are the ones that, under emphasis five, flip, flip over the page, I forgot he put these backwards, Flip over the page, and you'll see the 15 biblical emphasis for rediscovery and restoration. Those are the 15 areas that we're trying to do a rethink on. Now, this year at Wright State, 
emphasis five, the word of God, in trying to restore a, a biblical approach to the Bible is uh, what we're spending the entire school year on. So we're doing all fall semester. If you flip over to the other side, you'll get what we studied in the fall semester uh, at Wright State. And then we're going to continue the emphasis five uh, that is the Word of God. So in 2015, we looked at what it means to love God more biblically, because love has become like this vague thing in our, you know, like, I love you, I love my dog, you know, people have I love this and that and the other thing on their bumper stickers, you know, I love New York City, I love Alpo dog food, or, you know, and uh, I love my chihuahua, but uh, so uh, we, we talked about a biblical view of what it means to love God, then we looked uh, upon at grace upon grace, which was a condensed version for about five weeks of our 17-part series called Grace Upon Grace. We looked at the church in uh, studies of what the church ought to be for, oh, maybe eight or ten weeks in that year. And then we looked at the biblical way of reproducing leadership from within uh, through discipleship. And then this year we're just looking at on how to have a more comprehensive total approach to the Word of God. So that's what we're doing this year. On the other side, you'll see 23 topics, the first 22 of which is what we covered last semester. The number 23, emphasis 5-0, or 5-0, the letter O, is what we're starting tonight. So hopefully that all, <laughs> hopefully I've confused everyone now. So hopefully we're on uh, uh, the outline now that says emphasis 5, the letter O, then small letter A, Humanistic Christianity, Introduction to Worldviews and Epistemology. So when we're talking about uh, the, you know, the whole Bible being the Word of God, just to review a little bit of last semester, we started with verses like 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, All Scripture is inspired by God. And then I have this little joke where the Greek word all is, is the word pas, or pan. Either way, it depends on if it's a verb or a noun. But, you know, when you see pan-American airlines, pan means all. When pan-America airlines, what they're trying to say is, we're an airline that goes to all of the Americas. And um, so... Uh, pandemonium is actually, when they say, oh, all pandemonium is brought out, that's two Greek words, all and demon. All the demons have broken out when they say pandemonium has broken out in this party or whatever. So, uh, Panasonic, all the sounds. So, um, all scriptures inspired by God but most Christians have not been equipped and trained to study the whole Bible. And the doctrine of what's called plenary inspiration of Scripture means that in order to understand any Scripture, you have to see it in the context of all the Scriptures. And so to not equip the average Christian to read their whole Bible on some regular basis and get more out of it, uh, you're really doing them a disservice. So what, you know, a big goal of Grace Christian Fellowship and our campus ministries, Rock Campus Fellowship, has always been is to help you know how to read the whole Bible through several times at the beginning of your Christian life. Uh, whether you want to get, you know, like at a minimum, I would say, you know, read the New Testament a couple times a year, read the Old Testament once a year, 
during your early Christian years and learn how to look for major themes and the fact that it, even though it was written by through 40 human authors, authors on three continents over 2,000 years, it was written by one God, and it has one message. And there's one theme of the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ, and God producing a people by covenant that will bring his kingdom to the earth that flows through the whole Bible. And so learn how to read the Bible in terms of major themes and so forth. So um, <clears throat> that's kind of what we did last semester. So this semester, we want to look at the concept called humanistic Christianity. And what I mean by this is, is this. Um, how is it that things have crept into our mindset that negate Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of thy word is true, and every one of thy righteous ordinances is true altogether? 90% of Christians I meet, they, when they walk through our doors, if you ask them, have you read the whole Bible through even once, say no. Um, or at least 75%, I don't know. Every once in a while you meet someone and say, yeah, I've read the whole Bible three times, but that's rare. Um, the doctrine that the sum of your word is truth requires that you, if you believe that, if you believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, it should be a goal to read the whole Bible and to begin to understand it. Now, one of the things that um, takes reduces the message of the Bible, if, if you study, uh, we talk a lot in this church about what happened in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, and basically evangelical or Bible-believing Christianity went one way, liberal modernist Christianity went another way, and both of those... Um, sides had ways of reducing the Bible's message. So the liberals became more the way of approaching the Bible that the Sadducees were. They don't believe in the resurrection or miracles or the virgin birth or whatever. And uh, the conservatives uh, held fundamentally true the major ideas of the Bible, but began to approach them in a very performance-based way, the way the Pharisees did, in a very externalistic way and so forth. And for the most part, evangelical Christianity, to one degree or another, has become the mindsets of the Pharisees. Neither group liked Jesus, nor would either group like a church that Jesus was active in today. So... Um, one of the things that we're dealing with is, is basically called, we would call the reduction of Christianity. And one of the first and foremost things that we need to understand in terms of how Christianity got reduced in its message is the idea called humanism. Now, um, so hopefully you're on um, the Bible study that says emphasis 5, the letter O, small a, humanistic Christianity, and we're now at Roman numeral four there. Humanistic Christianity defined. So the first thing you need to know, if you're going to understand how did Bible-believing Christianity get so far off track, the first thing you need to understand is a thing called the law of non-contradiction. And the law of non-contradiction simply goes like this. A cannot equal not A. So... We have a wonderful Christian young man sitting right there named John Luke who has black sweatshirt uh, and black pants on and black tennis shoes. Now, if I say 
don't you like his red sweatshirt and his red uh, uh, pants and his Ohio State colors? And our good friend Logan, who likes Michigan here, which we forgive him and love him still, uh, we're here, and he said, I like his Michigan colors. And someone else would say, what the heck are you thinking? He has black on. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we can't all be right. So the essence of modern humanistic culture in the West today is that they would say, well, if it's red to you and that's working for you, that's okay. You know, um, if, you know, Teresa's sitting right there, if I were to say, well, her sweatshirt is navy blue and Amber said, can you see that it's burgundy? <laughs> and Stephen says, no, it's chocolate brown. It, we, one of us has to be wrong. There's only two possibilities. All of us could be wrong. Maybe she's wearing a green shirt. But, uh, or uh, only one of us could be right if we're saying contradictory things. Now, it's possible we're all wrong. It's actually really green. But um, Now, that's really important to understand because our entire culture today is based on, well, whatever is true to you and is working for you, and most Christian denominations are actually approaching the Bible that way. And it's, well, our denomination has always done it this way. But they can't all be right. It's kind of a fundamental idea. Now, secondly, um, point B there is probably the second best definition in the history of the world of humanism. And I reserved for point C the best definition in the history of the world of humanism. But we're going to talk for a little while tonight about what humanism is. So there was a Greek philosopher called Protagoras of Abdera, and he was what was called a pre-Socratic pre sophist. So when you say pre-Socratic, all you mean is a philosopher of the 5th century BC who lived before Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Now, uh, during that time period, most philosophers taught in a discipleship kind of way. The ancient world always taught by discipleship. Jesus didn't create anything new. That's how Moses taught Joshua. That's how Elijah taught Elisha. That's how learning was passed on in the days of Christ. Every young man who aspired to grow in the things of the Lord would have a personal rabbi who was discipling him in his understanding of the scriptures and so forth. So um, up until Plato, you were actually taught in what was called the academy, which became the basis of our, of our academia, word academia. And you were, um, so in those days, the ideas weren't written down into books usually. They were passed on into your followers. Jesus wrote no books. He, the book he wrote is called Peter, John, James, and so forth. And so, um, and they eventually wrote, Matthew and some of the other followers wrote books. But um, likewise, Plato actually took the ideas of Socrates and wrote them into books. The books of Socrates that we have are from Plato's notes that he wrote into books. Plato did write books. Aristotle wrote books. But Plato and others give us accounts of what Protagoras of Abdera taught. Uh, the reason he's called of Abdera is in the ancient world, you didn't have a last name like Johnson. 
John meant son of John. So you might like when Jesus said Simon bar Jonah, he's bar means son in Hebrew and Jonah means John. He said Simon, son of John. To, to distinguish him from some other Simon the Zealot or whatever. You'd usually would add something descriptive to their name. Simon the Zealot, Zealot wasn't his last name. He had been part of, of another party other than, the, you know, there wasn't just the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but there were the Herodonians and the Zealots and the Essenes as different sects in the days of Jesus. And Simon was called Simon the Zealot because he had been a Zealot before he joined Christ and the disciples. So Protagoras was born in a city called Abdera, and he had a uh, statement that he said, basically said this, man is the measure of all things. And that was the, the birth of what's called postmodernism today. Uh, man is the measure of all things basically means that whatever your reality is, is reality. You're the measure of all things. Your logic, your reasoning, you create your reality. Okay, so he was a contemporary of another philosopher named Heraclitus, who's kind of important as well, who said you can't step in the same river twice, by which he means everything is constantly changing. There are no eternal truths outside of ourselves. And the whole basis of biblical thinking is that there is a God in heaven who knows all things, has created all things, and he himself is the truth. And the truth is not in us. The truth is eternal in God, his person, and his word in the scriptures. So humanism is the idea that our interpretation of the truth is more important than what the truth actually is. And so that idea has crept into all of modern Christianity to the point that modern Christianity has, in various, various ways, reduced the message of the Bible and particularly within regard to these 15 emphases that we're trying to talk about. And what we're trying to do is do a rethink to rediscover, to rediscover the whole biblical truth of all these ideas. Now, the best statement of humanism starts in Genesis 3, which I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible real quickly. You can compare it to another one. There's ESV Bibles in the pews if you want to read the English Standard Version. Um... Genesis, those are both very good translations. And um, I actually have in my notes compare it, oh wait, in the ESV or the New King James. Um, now in the New American Standard, it goes like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. What, are you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> just adding a little bit. For God knows that in the days you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And uh, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord said, Adam, where are you? 
Now, God didn't ask that question because he didn't know where Adam was. He asked that question because for the first time, Adam didn't know where Adam was. So let's analyze this uh, progression of, of this temptation because in essence, the essence of humanism is progressed in this temptation. All human beings uh, have gone through this exact same process. We, uh, the way spiritual things work, you know, in psychology today, you'll get a lot of discussion about are things more environment or are they more heredity? In the Bible, things are always more spiritual heredity, and all human beings have inherited this fall from our uh, protogenical parents, Adam and Eve. And they've been passed down through Cain, Abel, Seth, and the others all the way down to us. And uh, so let's analyze this thinking process. First thing that they did was the serpent questioned God's word. Indeed, has God said. All humanism starts with saying, well, you can't be that serious about the Bible or some, some way of questioning the authority of God's word. God doesn't do miracles today. It must have been just stories or somehow you question the, the word of God. Okay. Now, now notice uh, Eve's response. Initially, she responds with clarifying uh, what God has done. So he first says, indeed, has God said that um, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So notice that right from the beginning, the serpent not only questions the authority of the word, he questions it on the basis of slightly changing it. So he says, has God really said you can't eat from any tree? And Eve, at first, uh, although she's now breaking a principle that she shouldn't have been discussing it with a strange serpent who's from who's a symbol of Satan and uh, shouldn't have been out from her uh, under her husband's covering nor uh, lack trust in God enough to get into a dialogue about it. She should have just rebuked him and commanded him, submitted, she should have submitted to God, resisted the devil, and he would have fled from her just like he still does today. But she gets into a discussion that she shouldn't have. But at first she corrects and says, wait a minute, from the trees of the garden we may eat. You're twisting these things. Uh, but from the truth of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So then the, the serpent escalates the, uh, the battle when, by saying, um, he, by going from questioning God's word and twisting it, it to actually contradicting it. He says, no, you shall surely not die, John Luke. Uh, you know, you, you shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. In the, the Hebrew there where it says knowing good and evil actually means determining for yourself good from evil. And see, the essence of humanism and the essence of fallenness is determining for yourself good from evil rather than God defining reality, truth. And he, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you know, we have a tendency to hear these things so much, we take some of the power of it. So I always tell people, stop for a minute and think that through. Because he's saying, I'm the road, I'm the reality, and I'm the source of all existence. Uh, 
and apart from me is just death. So, you know, whenever you read truth in the Bible, substitute reality to give, give yourself just a check to not, not gloss over it without putting full weight and meaning to it. So the serpent says, you'll be as God determined. So he says, you won't die, but what you will be is God. So he doesn't necessarily just, so he starts by contradicting the word of God. And therefore you need to remember the law of non-contradiction. At this point, A cannot be not A. Either the serpent is right or God is right, but there's no middle ground. And Eve chooses to believe the serpent. All sin is, is by believing a perspective that's not God's. So uh, the serpent uh, substitutes his word for God's. Now that idea that you shall surely not die is still has been in every man and, or woman since the beginning of time. One of the things that you deal with is when you're 16 to maybe 45 or 50, it's hard to realize I'm going to die. Because when, uh, when we're born, after our first year, when we have our one-year-old birthday party, even we, though we don't, those are really for the mom and dad, the kid doesn't know what's going on at that point, uh, that's your whole life. At two years, a year is a half of your life. At three years, it's one-third of your life. When you're 20, it's one-twentieth of your life. But there, people will always say, it seems like the years are getting faster. That's actually because from a human finite perspective, they are getting faster. They're a smaller percentage of your, of your timeline that you can relate to. But um, and all men deny death in their heart and mind to a certain point. And in science... All men always hold the hope that, that eventually we'll solve all diseases and people will live forever. There's a whole movement that's been going on for some time called cryogenics. And cryogenics is the idea that I should freeze my body just before I die in case eventually science ever does, con in, in the, in the, they actually think it's inevitable that science will conquer death. And therefore, when that happens, if my body is preserved, they can bring me back to life. So what they're still actually believing is you shall surely not die. Because, of course, for that to happen, one of the problems with evolutionary thinking is life would have had to come from non-life at some point. If evolution were true, some kind of life would have had to come out of inorganic uh, material, non-life. And Jesus, God, is the only one who can do that. He is the life. And so no matter how much man conquers disease and, you know, cancer or whatever, you know, if you go back and study polio and so forth, if, every time science has a breakthrough, there's new diseases continue to come along because man cannot break, you shall surely die. I actually sat in my living room talking to a guy who'd been brought up as a Methodist and had read through the Bible a few times and had, during his college years, lost his faith and had become an atheist and was reading a lot of atheist materials. And he actually told me, I believe that modern science will probably progress, maybe in my lifetime, enough that people will live forever. And I thought, Did you, don't you understand that that's been the heart of fallen man since Genesis 3? 
and you surely will die. <laughs> uh, maybe. So, um, so when Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually, but it put the principle in humankind that they would eventually die for real, physically. Now, um, the second thing Satan does, point four down there, is he accuses God's character. All temptations have an accusation against God. Whenever someone becomes a Christian, they're not just trusting in uh, particular Bible verses. They're trusting in the whole Bible. They're trusting in the character of God himself. And whenever someone drifts from the Lord, they're starting to trust themselves over God. So the, uh, the enemy says... Um, uh, he ba basically says that God knows that in the day you eat of it. What he's basically starting to imply is that God is trying to keep you from something. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. You should trust your own plan for your life rather than his plan. Most people who don't come to Christ, it's because they still want to be their own God and determine their own future. People who pray the sinner's prayer in a ministry but never really go on to maturity or whatever, um, it's because they, their center of who they're trusting for life and reality hasn't shifted, which has to happen over time in a process of discipleship. So um, man then enters what they call the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, see it, Teresa? So, and the thing is, it says the eyes of both of them were both open. That's biblical speak for they actually became blind at that point. Up till then, they could see. Now, they were actually blind. And so, it's the, yeah, someone on that side. So, um, and that's where the, the whole, all through the Bible, you'll actually see the theme of blindness versus uh, seeing. And that's why... Um, Nobody in the Bible actually heals anyone who's born blind until Jesus does it in the Gospels. So it's interesting that we see Elijah raise the widow's son from the dead. We see Joshua make this, the sun stand still for 10 hours, or God through Joshua. You know, we see, we see almost every miracle of the New Testament done in the Old Testament, except for the casting out of demons and... Um, uh, the baptizing in the Holy Spirit, and, and opening the eyes of those who are born blind. Because the metaphor runs throughout all Scripture that only Jesus can open the eyes of someone born blind. That's why when Paul is on the road to Damascus, it says he encountered Jesus, he was knocked off his donkey onto his donkey, and uh and he, he says, Lord, who are you? And then it says that at, you know, after Jesus tells him what to do and so forth, it says that he was blind for three days, which is the Bible's way of doing irony. It's the reverse of what we see happening in Genesis 3. Because actually, during the three days that Paul couldn't see physically was the first time that he ever saw spiritually in his entire life. His eyes were opened and his eyes were closed <laughs> At the same, and that's really what happens to Adam and Eve. It says the eyes of both of them were open. That is, they were open to look at life now from the fallen, sinful perspective that all of us are most accustomed to. And then they, before, 
they were able to be naked, intimate, share sexual relations, be married, and have no shame. Now, all of a sudden, they're, uh, they're aware of their shame, and they go to find a way to cover themselves. And from that point on, it's interesting, if you read all kinds of ancient literature from Babylonia and Egypt and so forth, every ancient culture of the world used nakedness as a symbol of shame. One of the most scary things about modern time is that nakedness is something we flaunt all over the place. And everybody's getting naked all you know, on the internet. Pretty scary, actually. Because, because when you've lost modesty, you've really lost a lot. So, um, so the eyes of both of them were open is really a play on words on purpose because now they're actually blind. Now they only see from a fallen person's perspective. Now they're determining for themselves what reality is. And what God is trying to deliver us from as we're progressively sanctified is a point of view that our emotions and our feelings are our are, are reality. And our thoughts and our values and what we love and don't love. And we need to constantly be submitting our reality to the way, the truth, and the life. And letting God in his sanctification redefine our passions, our loves, our our, our viewpoints, and so forth. Now, when they began to see their shame, they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loin coverings. Fig leaves are actually a vine that have really big, um, or a tree that has really big leaves. And um, that was the birth of self-righteousness. What they were basically trying to do was, we have a shame problem, we have a disconnected fellowship with God. This law of sin and death has been born into us. We know something different. I actually believe that when Eve gave the fruit to Adam, that Adam knew that Eve was deceived. He could see the change in Adam spiritually, and he chose to go with her anyway. He chose fundamentally the woman over God, which is something that God takes all his saints through. God will take you through a situation where Eventually, you choose him and your calling over your mate. Take you through various ways of testing that over time. And you can actually only have a good marriage when God is way more important to you uh, than your mate. So they... But all self-help books, all socialist philosophies, all, all of the blame-shifting, excuse-making, and rationalizing, they're all birthed into humanity right then. All the reducing of God's word. Man begins to hide from God. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and Romans 3.10 say it like this, There's none who seeks for God. No, not one. Together they've turned aside. Together they've been useless. When Adam, when God calls Adam, it's not because God doesn't know where he is. He's wanting Adam to begin to realize that Adam no longer knows where he is. So he says, where are you, Adam? Have you eaten from the tree you're not supposed to? Because you wouldn't be hiding if you weren't. You, you didn't know how to be afraid before then. You didn't know fear. You didn't know uh, the sense of that you will die. You didn't know any of these kind of strange feelings. And so, um, 
in essence, that's a diagnosis of humanism and how humanism was birthed into mankind. Flip over. We're making good progress tonight, a lot faster than we went at Wright State. Um, now, what uh, came out of humanism is basically four worldviews. Uh, some people postulate that there's a fifth worldview developing called postmodernism. We'll explain that in a minute. Um, and to do that, you actually have an outline that has on one side, it has a worldview chart, and on the other side, it has an epistemology chart. And I'm hoping to get into the worldview chart a little bit tonight, even though I didn't last week. Um, so let's, uh, let's get into that just a little bit after we read the first two verses there. So in Genesis 1, 26 through 31, it says, Then God said, let us, Trinity speaking to himself, God speaking in plurality to himself, let us, one God is saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule or take dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the, of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creeps that creep on the earth. I'm sorry, creeping things on the earth. It's my little joke. Um, you're supposed to take dominion over all the creeps. There's plenty of those out there, but... Uh, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Sometimes uh, Hebrew grammar and English isn't quite the same. We wouldn't say and, and. We just said comma. But be fruitful and multiply in this kind of for emphasis, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the over all the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing. Notice the three dimensions there. He said the heavens, the earth, and the seas. And all through the Bible, that's a major theme. The heavens, man, man is called to in, to bring back the kingdom of God to the earth, to the heavens, and into the seas. And the seas are always symbolic of taking. Uh, the Bible to all the lands and all the nations, because you have to travel through the seas to get to the, co the other lands. So, um, then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is uh, on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And earlier, by the way, he had said that every seed brings forth its own kind. That's a very important spiritual principle because when you're discipling people, you can take you, your ministry is exactly as valid as how far you let God take you. The reason God, the Bible says that he, that God loves the death of His saints, is as you are go through, lay down your life and take up your cross kinds of experiences. The more you get to your own Gethsemanes and not my will and thy will, the more God's character shapes you that way because the life is on the other side of the crosses. The more you lay your Isaacs on the altar and so forth, uh, to that degree, uh, you'll actually have life of Christ in you. Like Paul says, death works in us so that life might work in you. The more you've died, the more you have ministry. If you want to be called to the ministry, that means God's going to beat the <laughs> crowd out of you in various ways for a long time. And you're going to learn to love it <laughs> and be thankful. And trust him when he's killing you. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him, Job said. 
Uh, and believe me, he's going to slay you. <laughs> it's a promise. You can count on it. All right, so I've given you every tree and so forth, and every be uh, tree yielding fruit, it shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I've given every green plant for food. And so it was, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, and a very important thing at the end of that is that three of the uh, five days of creation up till the last day, God had ended by saying it's good. On the, on the sixth day um, of creation, or three of the first, yeah, five days, he said it's good. On the sixth day, he says it's very good. And that's really important because almost all forms of Gnosticism, which are rampant in uh, modern Christianity, or what's also called Neoplatonism or dualism, have this tendency to think spiritual things are good and material things are bad. And so if we just don't drink beer, you know, like we need to deny every physical thing. But God created beer. He created wine. He created food. He created clothes. He created all of it. And it's all good. It's just a matter of whose lordship is involved. And so Gnosticism always says that the spiritual is, is good and the material is evil. But God is actually, his salvation, uh, where it may, may begin with regeneration of your spirit, God wants to restore not only you, but he wants to save you spirit, soul, and body. And from out of his church, he wants to restore all the aspects of creation. You know, Christians actually should be environmentalists not necessarily having the same program as to how we would want to see it come about as the humanists would, but we should care most about the environment. You know, some people have accused the Christian worldview of wanting to subdue the earth and destroy it, and that all productivity is destructive and so forth, but that's basically a socialistic way of thinking that has nothing to do with the Bible. God wants responsible free enterprise that prospers the world and protects the creation and restores it. Acts 17, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, which means Mars Hill in Greek, and, um, and said, Men of Athens, I, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. We're all made in the image of God, so all men are religious. They have answers to things like who or what is ultimately real. So Paul, plain, not making full advantage of that, says this, For while I was passing through and examining the object of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now that was a radical thing to a Jewish audience. Um which is a major point that this is the third time in the New Testament, first Stephen, then Peter, then Paul, testify of the concept of the temple and that God is bigger than the temple. Um, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the earth. You've got to understand that the Greeks were evolutionists. So the idea that he made everyone from one protogenical couple 
one man uh, is was crazy to them. But if actually, if you know anything about uh, biology and genetics, it has to be that all dogs go back to one protogenical dog couple, <laughs> and all cats go back to one. It has to be. There's no way other way to work the math. And uh, you know, I, for instance, really like a PBS special on what's called koi wuss, and koi wuss are an interbreeding between coyotes and wuss that has created a new thing called the koi wuss that are uh, all over our cities. I saw one in front of John and Leah's house, uh, <laughs> running running across the parkway there, and uh, they uh, tend to not be seen very much. They're pretty good at not being seen, but they live among us and. They live in your neighborhood. A lot of them live in Fairborn, <laughs> so forth. But the truth is, because all canines are canines. Although now, as species isolate and so forth, uh, you know, Chihuahuas don't breed with Great Danes that much. But if you put them together, and you can breed them together. Hope the mom's not a, of the is not the chihuahua. <laughs> that would be bad. But uh, uh, but they are they all go back to one prototypical dog couple. And he made from one and in the math. There's no other way to think about it. To be honest, everything evolution is frankly pretty absurd. There's no cross between species. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their ab habitation. In other words, he, he, he appoints when nations fall, rise, and all that kind of stuff, movements of civilizations and everything, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In, for in him we live and move and have our being or exist, as even some of your poets have said, for we are all his children." So let's uh, talk about worldviews for a minute. Uh, we will probably get into this a little bit more tomorrow night. Um, but on your worldview um, chart there, you'll see the essence of worldviews. Number one, every worldview asks three questions. And everybody has answers to these questions in their mind. There's not a human being on the planet who doesn't have answers to these questions in his or her mind. The first question is who or what is ultimately real. Now, the reason we need to say who or what is because if you're a polytheist, which is one of the four choices on the left there, or a theist, then you think that reality is a who or a bunch of who's. Right? If you're a pantheist, you think that, th that reality is, is a what? If you're a naturalist, do you think th that reality is a what? In both cases, it's a non-personal. So in pantheism, it's may the force be with you is a pantheistic religion. Star Wars is based on kind of a little bit of a little bit of Zoroastrian with a lot of Buddhism mixed in. And uh, although on the surface with Obi-Wan and the disciples, there's all these Christian allegories on the surface of the Star Wars, the underlying philosophy of the Force is not quite Buddhism, because in Buddhism there's one non-personal energy force that you're trying to get in connection with, and if you get fully in connection with this, you've reached what's called nirvana. And nirvana is the absence of desire, the absence of personality, the absence of passion, a quite different view of salvation than what Christians have. 
And that's why many, many Buddhists are more disciplined than most Christians. Because in Buddhism, like, you should try to get rid of the appetite for food, for sex, for rest, for everything. You should try to get rid of your personality and feeling that strongly about something and having passionate responses to this or that. Because in Hinduism and Buddhism, there's this non-personal energy force. Now, Star Wars throws in an ancient religion that's down to less than a million uh, inhabitants called Zoroastrianism, which postulates that there's a good side to this force and a bad side to this force, and, and the bad side is equal in power to the good side, which, again, is a very pagan concept, non-Christian concept. And if you start going down the dark side, it'll control your destiny forever because <laughs> it's just as strong as the light side, supposedly, or the good side. So um, those four religions are the answers of who or what is ultimately real. The second part of a worldview is the nature of man. Now, in terms of the nature of man, there are three different subsets of questions that are asked about the nature of man. The first one is that is does man have an ethical predisposition or a built-in intrinsic means built-in moral nature. So for instance, if you're raising children, one of the, your goals is that you might from external pressure make your kid practice the piano every day. <laughs> right? You know like you sit down at that piano and you're going to practice and I you know what you, but the goal of all good parenting is eventually the child would develop intrinsically the desire, like the desire to practice the piano more or whatever the, the child is, whatever you're trying to cultivate in terms of values, culture, integrity, character, and so forth. And so when the kid doesn't need anyone else to help them do their homework anymore, then you've really got getting somewhere. <laughs> and, um, when you you know, I always say uh, you know if your mother has to still get you up to go to college when you're you know 16 years old, that's pretty sad. Self government starts with uh, changing things to intrinsic. So when we what the first question we're asking is: Are people born with a bent or a proclivity towards being morally good, morally neutral, or basically evil? The second question every worldview asks is, does, are people born with innate value? Now, value is always in relation to something else. My wife had her, uh, we won't say what number, birthday last year, and my good friend Amber Johnson went with me to the store because she knows about jewelry, having worked in a jewelry store, and she knows about fashion and because and she was an artist and is an artist and so forth. So we... Uh, she helped me pick out stuff that the colors worked and this and that and, and all that because um, I guess I spent a thousand dollars or so, whatever it was, whatever whatever amount of money. My wife's birthday was more important than that amount of money in my mind, and that she would have a you know diamond ruby bracelet that she wanted and some earrings and so on, whatever. So you're always making a value prop. Is this car worth five hundred dollars? <laughs> you know, is this sweater worth fifteen? Or, or uh, you know, you know, if you're not like, for instance, if you're not in the kind of career that you need the top-notch clothes, you might shop as a guy. You might shop at the thrift store. You know, <laughs> like yeah, all my t-shirts cost fifty cents. Um. So, 
Every value is always in relation to something else is what I'm trying to say. And um, lastly, are we more influenced by heredity or are we more influenced by the environment? So let's quickly just talk about a Christian view of these things. In my classes at Sinclair Community College for years, I always did a little survey of, do you think man is born basically good, basically evil, or a blank slate, basically neutral, and it's just his environment that shapes him? Because if you believe man is basically neutral, then what we need is better education and more money for schools and stuff like that. So, um, you know, we need to change people's environment or their externals. That was, if you study the religion of the Pharisees, mostly they wanted to keep away from the bad external environments. Like most most uh, evangelical Christians today, because they see the world in a more uh, Gnostic, dualistic way, and they see the future as what's called dispensational premillennialism, that evil is triumphant. Most evangelical Christians who homeschool and whatever are trying to protect their kids from a certain amount of reality. And uh, we don't want you to learn how to drink beer. I taught my kids how to drink beer at home. <laughs> you know, I did. Uh, so, better... Who better to learn it from than your father? But uh, <laughs> so, you know, we had wine at Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas dinner and things like that. And we talked a little bit about the use of alcohol and stuff when they were, and they had a glass of wine when they were eight or whatever. So, um, is man basically uh, good, basically evil? Now, because of the secular humanistic predominance religion of our culture, and this is, this is a way you can tell how, what people really believe, even the ones who said they were Christian, around 90% of my students said man is basically good. Around 10% would say man is basically neutral, and I never had a student that said man has a basic bent toward evil. The problem is, is that what, is what the Bible taught. So after I took that survey, when we were talking about worldviews, I gave a brief 15-minute lecture about man's inhumanity to man and how much evil there has been in the world and is in the world today. I mean, the news is about murders and totalitarian governments in Syria and ISIS chopping people's head off and... And, uh, you know, there's poverty in every culture and there's social injustice in every culture and human trafficking is at, a, uh, slavery is at an all-time high worldwide. And, and uh, you know, uh, one out of three pregnancies are ended worldwide by abortion and so forth. So uh, no matter how much you go into the facts, for instance, if you go back to ancient civilizations such as Egypt and around 3000 BC or so, of the human history we know, there hasn't even been a year's worth of days that there hasn't been a war going on somewhere. Now, no matter how good a job I do explaining man's, you know, in man's inhumanity to man is, you know, read Anna Karenina, for instance, a Russian novel, you know, man's in, evilness toward his fellow man is a major theme of all art, of all literature, of all movies, 
uh, evolve philosophy and so forth. In fact, in my class, The Search for Utopia, the, one of the reasons I cover this is every worldview, Christian or non-Christian, basically says things ought to be right, but, but society is full of evils. What's the reason for that? Yet fallen man is not willing to admit that it, the reason is this problem called sin in our hearts. No matter how much reality they, they're faced with, if you identify it as sin in your hearts, then the problem is, is you can no longer be taking the speck out of everyone else's eye. You know, if you look at the essence of liberalism, it's like, let's bring good about by stealing everyone's money who's working hard and redistributing it and so forth. Let's impose good from, from government laws because they see themselves as basically really uh, holy, happy, healthy, good people. <laughs> Liberals are always good in their own imagination. And then there becomes a stronger and stronger gap between uh, that world, that liberal worldview and actual character and behavior. You know, like at the start of the Obama uh, presidency, one of the funny things in the news was over 30-some of his appointees couldn't be confirmed because they had IRS tax liens and problems and they were cheating on their taxes. But they were the same people who were saying we ought to have more taxes. Now, I'm not Republican or Democrat. Don't hear. I hate them both. Because the, the whole point is I don't see government as having any capability of doing anything but making it worse. Govern more government is intrinsically evil because who's gonna who's going to watch... The, the hen house, you know, to, you know, pass laws to protect the chickens and then point a bunch of foxes to be in charge of protecting the chicken house is the essence of government solutions. And I could go further and further with that if you wanted. Uh, if you notice that all the government agencies like the, the um, um, Federal Food and Drug Administration that's supposed to guard us in our the quality of our foods and how well they're butchered and cleaned and packaged and, and so forth and keep us from unhealthy drugs and so forth. All the top people in that are people that used to be major executives in the food and, and drug companies who now own large shares and in the name of being uh, objective or neutral or not having a conflict of interest, they no longer actually work for Monsanto or Tyson or Squibb Pharmaceutical, but they own so much stock that they have a vested interest in that drug company prospering. So they come to Washington to run the Federal Food and Drug Administration so they can blink and say, yeah, Tyson, they're, they're godly, they're, they're really good people, <laughs> and so forth. So we have the fox watching the chicken house. That's inevitable with more government. Because if you don't change the character and the heart of man, you change. You cannot. You you can't legislate enough goodness to enforce goodness. Okay. So, is man basically good, basically evil, or basically neutral? The Bible's view is that man needs a heart transplant, not more laws. Does man have innate value? Well, value is always in relation to something. So, in the humanistic way of thinking. Value uh, is man is the product of evolution. So 
when the Christian worldview predominated, the Christian worldview says man is made in the image of God. Therefore, you know, um, picketing at an abortion clinic on Stroop Road or whatever in Dayton, Ohio, the birthplace of partial birth abortion, the most heinous of all abortion methods, was created right here in Dayton. To picket there and to and to try to help women save themselves and their babies from all that torture and hurt and guilt and every and murder and everything else, to do that uh, is based on the fact that you think every human life has value. Now, as the Christian consensus began to break down in Western culture, when evolution first started becoming more predominant in thinking, starting with Darwin, although evolution is an ancient doctrine, when it started to sweep Western culture more and more, replacing Christianity, at first, people would say, well, human beings are just the highest evolved species, so we ought to save the whales and say this and that and everything. Eventually, that degenerated to, well, human beings are just a, a product of biology. So who's to say a penguin is not as important as a human being? Now, I believe we should save endangered species. Hundreds of species become extinct every week. Um, but is would I spend as much time and effort to save... Uh, an endangered animal species as I would a human being. No, because human beings are made in the image of God. So value is always in relation to something. And then lastly, um, although the Bible is basically for in, you know better environments, it's ultimately your spiritual heritage that has more to do. So the number one thing I actually want to do is I want to help young ladies, before they ever court, become godly Christians. I want to help young men, before they ever court, become godly Christians. And I want them to enter marriage with a lot of maturity, because they will create an environment that's healthy for their kids, and they will spiritually have, if they've gone through what's called deliverance, and they've broken uh, generational curses off of them and so forth, they will give birth to kids that are less influenced by those the generational curses. And so, in my opinion, don't even bother to court or get married till you're past the fears and past the addictions and so forth until you've gotten a whole new life in Christ. Now, obviously, people come to the Lord that are already married all the time, and so you just got to deal with it. Now, last part of a worldview, first part is who or what is ultimately real. Second part is the nature of man. The last part is man in society. Based on what you think about who or what is ultimately real and the nature of man, you will have ideas about what makes for less social injustice and for a more equitable system. So, for instance, Karl Marx, every worldview, you know, communism is a humanism. And uh, communism is an outworking of that fourth worldview called naturalism. When you see the world as, as only material, there's no eternal spiritual side to life, and man is just the product of biological processes, then you inevitably want the state, the, the government, to do something better for people. It's part of humanism. Every ancient culture of the world had emperor worship, and uh, 
in state worship, and the state was totalitarian. The idea of limiting the state is uh, a great part of Christianity, because in Christianity, seeing man is basically evil, we need to uh, limit the state in an from in lots of ways by a written constitution by removing the power from the central and put it out to the local as much as possible i i actually hope texas you know secedes from the union what i actually hope is that the united states will uh four or five states over here will break off and form a new country and four or five over here will form a new country and four or five and then eventually we'll have like 14 countries uh because, you know, fallen man always wants it to, to be more and more centralized. They love the European Union idea. To, like, to, the, to fallen men, uh, you know, Brexit was a terrible thing. To biblical men, it's like, praise God, the British got a little, one step toward freedom back. Because it's inevitable, the more you look to the state, so Marxism, for instance, is just one status worldview that says every worldview has a doctrine of sin. Every worldview says, I know uh, things aren't working that well, so we have to put the blame for that somewhere. So in Marxism, the blame goes on anyone who owns property or who's been educated. So whenever the Marxists have taken over a country, they've killed all the property owners, all the factory owners, and all the academics. Because in their doctrine, sin is rooted in the nature of having been bourgeois uh, or a property owner, and, it's, and, and you, can't, you can't re-educate the academics. You just got to kill them. That's why Lenin, when he took over Russia, said if we have to kill tens of millions of people to bring about a more perfect society, that's a price worth paying. In statism, it's always worth, like they don't see the contradiction. Now, nobody, there's actually people who believe that Machiavelli, who wrote The Prince, um, said that the ends justify the means. That's not in the book The Prince. He never said that. However, he implied that, and so does Marxism, and so does fascism. Fascism, Marxism is this theoretical idea that eventually, when we kill off all the bourgeoisie and the, and the non-property owners are now in power, instead of having animal farms so that they become now the new masters, what we'll have is that international boundaries will break down and we'll have one peaceful world like, you know, in, in the Star Trek and... You know, in that kind of utopian kind of way of thinking. Uh, like, we're all, everyone will get along, and the United Nations will actually work, <laughs> and, and it won't be an immoral institution. <laughs> I mean, which is crazy, laughable, but, um, you know, and we'll all just live happily ever after, and because we'll impose righteousness externally on everyone. And more laws and more centrality of government, and it'll bring harmony to the galaxies. That's the essence in the, you know, the Star Wars thing of what the Empire wants to do. You know, so fascism is the idea that we should just do this in one nation. And so back in the day, the liberal people, the humanistic people, saw fascism and humanism as far left versus far right. 
But actually, if you look at things, they're really just two points on the same circle <laughs> that come together. Uh, because the truth is, nowhere has the Marxist ideal led to the breaking down of nation bound, national boundaries and so forth. And uh, they're really the same idea, but they don't want, they, no one, like if you would be considered stupid if you said that in academia today. But they are. They're state-planned economies, state-planned means of production, state-planned impositions of supposedly a more uh, just and equitable decision. Now, fascism usually adds a, an element of Darwinism that usually gives, uh, gives birth to... Uh, um, what am I trying to say, to the eugenics movement, which basically says this is the desirable bloodline and this is the undesirable bloodline. And the undesirable bloodline is anyone who has birth defects. Uh, in Hitler's Germany, it was anyone who's Jewish, and especially in the eugenics movement, anyone who's dark. The black people, the Hispanic people, the Oriental people, all the colored people, uh, they're the less biologically now. If you know anything about dominant recessive genes, that really doesn't stand up to any science anyway. There's no science that actually thinks that white people are more evolved than black people. But Hitler and his people believe that. And Margaret Sanger and the you know starters of Planned Parenthood believe that. That's why all Planned Parenthood clinics target black neighborhoods and Hispanic neighborhoods. Because eugenics, uh, Hitler brought over a lot of the leaders of the American eugenics movement to educate his top SS people and so forth, and why we needed this final solution of killing all the Jews, all the Christians, all the gypsies, all the black people. They didn't have a lot of black people, thankfully, luckily for the black people. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and anyone who's born with any kind of birth defect. So what you have in humanistic religions is, and indeed hath God said, and so forth, is you always have the illusion of righteousness. I actually believe that lots of humanist status people actually think deep down in their heart that this could possibly bring about a greater good. I have a brother who's a humanist and a liberal, and he says, well, I see the government is the only thing big enough to bring about good because he doesn't understand the power of conversion. He doesn't understand the power of the gospel, and he doesn't understand the power of what Christianity can be and will be again as God restores his church. And of course, they're quick to point out that at certain times in history, the church did these terrible evils because power unchecked is, that we, you know, we, biblical society never is not looking for an ecclesiocracy, in other words, we're not looking for the church to rule society. We are looking for a theocracy, God through his word in, in the civil government, in the church, in all sorts of uh, the family and everything, having their proper roles under biblical uh, instruction in law. So um, that is the only way to bring about good. And if you don't know the Lord and you don't know the power of conversion, and you don't know the power of casting out demons, and the power of healing, and the power of the gospel, and if you don't know the power of the, of, 
of a re- if you have a church with real Christians in it, the power of what kind of good a community can do for, with one another. And that the reason I magnify my ministry in the church, and when we get young men and young women who come here that are off on pursuing the, you know, their music ministry or their art ministry or this and that, the reason I try to get them out of all that is... T- it is to help them, God get a hold of them and understand their the worldview and understand biblical thinking to, so that they actually have some real answers in themselves. You know, I often tell couples that they want to go change the world when they don't have that great a marriage or whatever. Like, let's disciple you first. Let's change you. And that might take a few years, but uh, but believe me, in the end, it's worth it. So... People go, well, well, you're on such a small level. Well, that's because we're in a process of restoration. And the more that restoration takes root, the more it'll begin to multiply. If it takes four years to disciple one person, then the two of you disciple two more. Then so that in eight years you have four people, and in 12 years you have eight people, and in 16 years you have 16 people, and so forth. In approximately 100 to 150 years, you'll have over 4 million people. Jesus' ideas haven't been tried and found wanting. They just haven't been tried much since the early church period. And um, the church will be restored by God, and it will do that again. And it will change all the nations for godliness and righteousness before the Lord Jesus comes back, because the Bible says it will happen. Lastly, man and society, you know, we're on that for now. So socialism, even democracy, is man's humanistic idea. Democracy, autocracy—you know—that comes from two words: demos, people, democracy, the rule of the people. Democracy is the idea if we just have the majority. But the problem is the majority. Are, the, the reason our forefathers wanted the government restrained by a written constitution, and by you know electoral colleges and and uh, a large house and a small house, and, and the Congress would be the most powerful institution, whereas today the most powerful institutions are the presidency and the, and the judiciary. The reason they wanted the, the rights left to the states and all this kind of stuff is they feared democracy. Because democracy, uh, all you have to do is have like what we have today, a declining reading where less and less people read and less and less people, are, and everyone's raised in a public school system where there's a group think and no one knows how to question and nobody knows how to think on a paradigm level or a worldview level and everybody just kind of buys into whatever and then everyone who runs the media comes out of that narrow-minded worldview and it's not, and so forth. When The more you have that, democracy eventually becomes a tyranny. And people forget that our enlightened Supreme Court in 1850 in the Dred Scott situation said that black people were three-fifths of a person. And just because of the majority of people say we should read, kill Mexicans, doesn't mean we should kill Mexicans. So, um, you know, majorities can be a very wicked thing. And there's no... You know, like the the Western mentality today is this utopian hope that democracy will save us, and all we have to do is export revolution to all the Muslim countries, so that so that radical Muslims take them over with Sharia law and and tell our tell the people that what we're doing is supporting democracies. You know, 
And uh, those democracies since the Arab Spring have wiped out more Christians and more churches than any other time period since the communists started declining. So, um, you know, humanism usually has what's called linear historical optimism. The Bible has a linear historical optimism point of view as well, but for quite different reasons on a quite different basis and quite different institutions bringing it about. So that's an introduction to worldviews. Uh, we'll wait till the next message to introduce the subject of epistemo epistemology. Excuse me. Um, had a lot of salad today. It's kind of coming back on me. Uh, a lot of green peppers. And uh, <laughs> um, the idea of, of epistemology is the idea that all thought systems have a postulate a reality being somewhere, either in man's reason or in God's word or so forth. And we'll look at a biblical view of epistemology uh, in the next message. And, Amen.